Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. And welcome to this week's edition of Pathway to Peace, a show which analyzes the current issues and trends affecting us all, trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and maybe the noblest of them all, inner peace. As the cost of living continues to take its toll in society, government strategy appears to still favour lower taxation even on big businesses that are generating huge revenues. The current Prime Minister, Liz Truss, stated during her leadership that making profit is not evil. In an article in the BBC, um, it was quoted to say that some of the windfall taxes on profits were urged by some to help, were about, about bashing business and that Profits of seeing as dirty and evil is is what she said, and you know uh, there's a lot to unpick out of that conversation, out of that quote. And with me today, I have Asif Asher co-presenting me, who's going to help me unpick this. Nice Thank you, Asif. You. Nice to meet you. Okay, so Asif, that quote by Liz Truss, she was she was uh, not prime minister at the time. She's prime minister now, obviously. Um, that profits are not dirty and evil. Let's just focus on that. It's profit as opposed to profits, as opposed to the uh, this sort of spiritual leading. P R O F I T profit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so money profit. Well, the other profit is is evil, as we would agree. So. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. You were saying regarding the context of it as well. Yeah. So, given that it's um, you know she said it shouldn't be seen as evil, and just looking at that quote, just. In its isolation, before we kind of look at some of the wider issues uh, around that, um, what's wrong with making a profit? You know, that's what a company's there for, right? They make money, you know, and they make a profit, and, and that, that's it. That's is what's, what's more is it to than that? Yeah, I think the the kind of interesting aspect of it all is perhaps first of all, obviously, in the context of why it was used and where it was used. Yeah, uh, has to be put, first of all put into into context as such. One of the things, obviously, it was a part of a, her leadership process that she's going through, predominantly speaking to, obviously, conservative memberships. Um, and she's using that phrase um, also in, in the time when the nation itself is concerned about the cost of living and the huge profits being made by the uh, energy companies, the producers predominantly. Um, and obviously at the time, there's a lot of talk by uh, other parties talking around this, the solution being a windfall tax on that particular, as a, as a way of solving that particular area. And to um, obviously, she's, this whole issue regarding the cost of living has been driven predominantly by high fuel prices, high gas prices, and obviously knock-on effect is because of the Ukraine war going on. So in context, that's what's been said, why it's been around. But she's also talking to a base of people who are conservative members, who are paid-up members in this area, and 
some of them may well have a predominantly a Christian morality about this, this idea. So she uses the word evil, which we would associate as being a moral kind of almost state sinful, of, sinful, sinful moral. So you, you know, she could have said, um, "Prophet is is not bad." Right? Yeah. So she could have said that. That would have been more of a gener- general context. But she, when she focused on this word evil, it becomes a statement that she's addressing a kind of religious context as well. Because in, in a way, she's perhaps uh, alleviating the, the concerns that maybe some of her Christian conservative base might have with regarding this particular situation. And that, the, you know, to resolve it is um, that they may be veering towards a concept of a windfall tax. And some conservative members were considering this idea of, of a windfall tax being an acceptable approach towards it. Not everyone. They would be in a minority. Yeah, I mean, that, Rishi, that was Rishi Sunak's... Rishi Sunak... His ha- argument when he was going for... It was a leadership bit at the time when she said it. Yeah. Rishi Sunak was said, you know, we need this kind of tax. This and, tax. and obviously he might have been, to say, dragged to that to that area to actually talk about a windfall tax, but... His particular windfall tax, let's be clear, has also had a number of loopholes in there that allow mm-hmm. people to get a lot of benefits or tax exemptions as a result of this. So it still costs the taxpayer money to, to have this particular windfall tax. However, her approach towards this is perhaps dealing with that, that conservative base that and the Christian conservative base that may not um, find the way that the ludicrous profits are being made by these producers being kind of moral, acceptable. Uh, so she's going there to alleviate that concern, and, and that's that's the main area of her context that she's putting it into. So, but it does raise this whole kind of question about um, our attitude towards profit and what it is. Um, and you, you know, I think the argument here is that profit, you know, in itself is, you know, an acceptable idea. Yeah. It, you know, the analogy you could say it's it's maybe like a weapon in the sense that, you know. It's how you use it and how you, it's how you come about and what means you have it and what context you have it in. It, in itself isn't a bad thing. It's how it's been, um, let's say, responded to or used, etc. So yeah. that, maybe that's an analogy, a weak analogy, but in some respects that's the idea. So profit isn't, isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in the economic terms, you can have a business that might turn around and make what they call normal profits, normal being and an acceptable level of profits that's not just allows you to sustain your business and be seen as essentially acceptable and keep your head above water kind of idea. What the kind of profits we're talking about is is a kind of concept of profits which are now currently seen as ex, you know extreme or extortionate, and not just, seen before. And just to put some context around that, because at the time she said it, um, just before that, BP had reported its biggest quarterly profit in 14 years. And Shell posted a record profit of 11.5 billion, uh, and that was at the time about a month before she made that quote. And uh, I'm reading off uh, uh, the BBC website. So, the the level of profit is huge, and I think the interest. And I think one of the things we we got to talk about this is the timing of what she said. Now we were talking about profits, and we were talking about how much profit was made and size of profit. We're also talking at a time when people are finding it difficult to live and having to pay higher energy the costs. Yes. You know, they're now facing... A, so it, it, in the layman's eyes, that looks... You know, it seems unfair. It seems almost... What, hang on a second. If they're making more tax and we're paying more, where's the where's their quality in that? You know, so, you know, are, should, should not those profits be passed on to the consumer in terms of maybe lower costs for them? 
you know, or, or you know, or is it just should, is it simply, you know, is it something we accept? You know, companies make bigger profits in that time. I mean, why the rising costs for for the consumer at the end of the day? The argument used for allowing those businesses to make those kind of profit levels is that it then enables them to look at improving their investments and making investments and future investments into this particular area. That's what the argument is used. And the difficult different here is is that she's also used the term in the bus, in in her speech, which also talks about uh, bashing business. I think if yeah. you want to quote that exactly word for word, it might be an interesting way to, to open it up as well. Because yeah. she refers to that. And I think that's also very interesting because you can't you can hurt people with the policies you have. Yeah. And people get hurt. Corporations are not people. Yeah. You can't bash your business because yeah. a business is not a human entity. It's yeah. it's you know, intangible in that sense, right? She said it was all about bashing business and it sends this is a quote it's all about bashing business and it sends the wrong message to internal investors and to the public. Well, it's an interesting statement. How what sort yeah. of message does it send to the public? The exactly. public would actually you could argue would receive that differently because that says, well, the burden of this trial, this, you know, of our trial essentially is uh, an economic situation which is being brought about by global issues. Then the burden of that might well be picked up by organisations and entities, and less so on on the public itself. So that one, uh, that way of dealing with it, the public, I would imagine, would not see that necessarily as a um, a negative thing and and you know there are many surveys around how you know people's attitude towards taxation is is different than they actually believe it is to in, in essence there are a lot of cases where you could um either polls which relate to people's attitude towards taxation and taxation is sometimes accepted as a high you know accepted if the tax is used for a, a better use for example and and that uh, approach is never really filtered through to the actual policy because there are few voices that will obviously speak out against high taxation. Uh, I mean, essentially, when we're talking about high taxation, uh, it usually falls on the lower end of the scale as opposed to the higher, r- richer earners. And I think that's probably one of the problems we're facing. Is, is, is it not uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of you know, if you look at if you look at the recently, uh, the mini budget that uh, was just happened, yes. uh, there was a um, alleviation tax on some of the higher earners, and people are asking why. Apparently, that's supposed to be a part of the whole. And this is another one of those quotes that we get used to over time. It's trickle down economics. You know, we've had kind of loads of these one off, you know, quotes that are meant to alle- you know, help the the poorest in society, the less well off in society, and now we've got trickle down economics. Yeah. So. You know, it's is that is that a reality? Is that you know is that something that's going to happen now? It, We're saying that co- companies are making these huge profits. The richer are now being taxed less, and that will now help the poor. The argument is, yeah. If we look at the argument that's made for trickle down, mm-hmm. is the argument is that that's expenditure, the freedom of expenditure that that supposedly successful person now has will now then spend it on things that will then effectively, if they essentially, they buy luxury goods, those luxury goods are then 
going the money of that is going into the pockets of the people who sell it it goes into the people who produce it and buy it and so and so forth so the money then starts to sort of work its way through the economy from the top down yeah. essentially right so you know a luxury handbag might be sold for example <laughs> um the person who sells it a store owner or, or shop goes off and spends that money into the cafe the cafe owner then you know goes off and pays his mortgage so you know you've got several steps of yeah. people then utilizing the money flowing essentially through the economy yeah. and that's the argument made there but in if the arguments made by the alternative to that has always been that where has it ever worked yeah and when has it ever really worked um and the that particular concept was challenged in the early 20th century i believe is when you had economists like Maynard Keynes coming along and when they were dealing with the sort of the, the big recession uh, in the 30s as well, their approach was that, you know, you tackle those sort of situations where if you have, there was no essentially trickle down going on in those, that scenario. You had a huge amount of uh, wealth inequality going on in that society, a lot of mass unemployment as well at the same time. And it, when you have that sort of uncertainty, the argument is, is that people will start to hoard wealth rather than hmm. expend, spend it, invest it, and so on and so forth. The argument then is that, so with Maynard Keynes scenario, argument is that you actually, you know, if you have to, the, uh, you know, his analogy was if you have to pay people to dig a hole yeah. and pay others to then fill it up, yeah. you've achieved nothing. But what you've actually, actually achieved is that you are making money move in the economy. You are actually moving money around with people who will spend it, who need to spend it, who will actually have a, a reason to spend it straight away. And so therefore you drive the economy through the actual use of sort of infrastructure or any mm -hmm. kind of uh, distribution of wealth where it goes down to people who are most needy for it. Yeah. So his analogy was completely at loggerheads with what the way of thinking was, the economic thinking of the time. And it's still prevalent now and it's used now. What's happened with this mini budget is it's a really strong harking back to that way of thinking and that way of approach that there it, it also has a lot of stuff in there which is so blatantly... Um, of that era, that sort of time of, of when trickle-down economics was was the thing to do, that um, it feels so very blatant. And there's a risk, obviously, in, in that. And I think sometimes you could argue that the markets, or supposedly the currency markets, have reacted in, in many ways to not having the confidence in this approach. Perhaps, perhaps because they've seen it before, or perhaps they see the what it might see as a gamble approach um, towards this approach. And and you know the the figures that you you look at with this particular um, particular tax uh, reduction that's been made in the mini budget because what goes on with this scenario was uh, Liz Truss's approach has always been around dealing with the situation with tax cuts and tax cuts and and she could argue the case is that the UK tax burden is higher than it's ever been and it's higher than it's ever been predominantly has been under this conservative era of government era and she has a case there that you know, is high and that needs to be addressed. However, in context of where we are in our situation, it also has this issue that the, the wealth inequality and how it's been addressed, that somebody on a million pounds income is now 55,000 pounds better off yeah. versus somebody on a 20,000 income is only 157 pounds better off. Mm -hmm. And you know, on somebody on 200 is, is, is 5K better off. So, you know, 
some people's energy bills are way above that sort of yeah. level in terms of what they're what they're having to 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 deal with. That the impact of that 157 pounds on a 20 20k income is is nominal. It's not going to make a difference. It's going to go yeah. on one of the bills to a big utility or to a bank or yeah. to pay for their mortgage or, or their yeah. rent or something. And we had that issue with you know people either yeah. heating or eating. You know that was you know exactly. We talked about that perhaps in, in a previous uh, we did, yeah. stuff. And, and this scenario will happen. It, it necessarily won't necessarily make a a huge difference on them. Um, and it may also. The concern that we have, I guess, with pathway to peace scenarios is that when you start having that, you have a situation of social injustice and, and yeah. social inequality. And that inequality can lead to more chaotic issues and challenges that come along. Yep. I mean, I mean, so then why do we have this rising inequality at this time in this era when, you know, we're making when companies are making so much money and, you know, we should have. I mean, you, you're talking about um 30s economics yeah. econ- economics that was considered in the 30s and we're looking at that now and you know it seems to me that that money never trickles down far enough to make a difference to anyone who needs it and really by the time it does if it does it could well be too late you know it, I'm just saying it, at that point the damage could have been done people could have be out of business people could be you know lost their house whatever they're, they're you know that kind of the cost that they're facing they need instant action, and you know what we're fa- what we're seeing with these kind of policies uh, is almost not dealing with it. It's like trying to push it, you know, under the carpet. And I'm not trying to. This is this isn't any kind of political bashing. It's just that I'm trying to look at it from the point of view of the people at the bottom, and um, as opposed to the people at the top. Um, so, and, and that, that's why I want to kind of. That's why I'm so concerned with that quote about uh, evil. You know, a profit being evil. Is she, you know, are we defending companies now for making that kind of profit and not passing it down into, into lower uh, costs for uh, the consumer, or is it simply, um, you know, we shouldn't bash companies for making profit? You know, because that's what they do. I don't think we, um, the argument here is is that there isn't a case of people bashing businesses for making profit. Mm-hmm. It's also about how the businesses behaves with. Yeah. I mean, there's there's the concept of profit is really an interesting argument. I think. One of the first lessons that I've ever learned as a Muslim about Prophet was actually the story of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And, you know, as a 25 year old young man trying to make his way in the world, yeah. he um, he managed to get a job uh, as part of a recommendation to, to work for a, a, a successful businesswoman who was a widow. Um, and her name was Hadija. Um, and Hadija um, gave or uh, em- employed the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace, Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, to actually be essentially a, a businessman who took her goods, um, traveled, uh, I think, to, to maybe Syria, I think it was, to, to sell her goods um, and, and then return part of a caravan and, and, and return with her with profits, essentially. And what actually happened from just that first one trip that he had made on behalf of her that she was he had she he had actually sold out all of her goods right yep. on that trip there was um and returned a profit for her in doing so um 
And that was a remarkable kind of achievement in that respect. So what it came out of was, was how the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his honesty and his integrity to dealing with, with business and with profit, was that he did make a profit for, for his employer, Hazrat um, Hadija, but at the same time he was being fair with it. And by being fair, he actually managed to um, give the actual people who were buying from him in as a result of where he was marketing and selling it, a good deal, essentially, right? Yep. So the idea of transacting with we will have a good deal, essentially, is and you make a profit. But there is actually no no harm in that, nothing wrong in that, and it and it benefited him because it showed his integrity and his honesty, etc., through that process, right? So that was one of our kind of like first lessons on how you deal with business, how you deal with profit, and there was no essentially no. Um, wrong approach to actually doing, to actually taking profit. Profit isn't a bad thing. It's essentially the questions will come about of it is what happens with it and, and, and how you use it. I mean, there is a case that a lot of corporates and businesses in recent times have sat on a high level of cash. Right? Mm-hmm. So they're cash rich and they're not necessarily using that cash in an effective way. So in, in respects, they're being profitable, but they're hoarding that kind of wealth out of the economy. Yeah. So there's an argument that says that that hoarding of wealth in some respects in some respects is not necessarily good for the economy. It's not good for people, it's not good for the economy. From a government point of view, you want that wealth to move in the economy to 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 reach parts and to keep it growing and so forth. And part of this budget that has come out is solely built on this concept of growth. They need yeah. growth. The gamble is get growth and the economy will, and, and all of that debt that you're having to acquire yeah. to fund this tax cut will then you know, be easily managed, etc. But it's a big gamble on that side of approach. And if you give it to people who have got a high level of wealth and you're giving it to the rich, you have to expect them to actually circulate it. And if they, they don't do that, yeah. then the challenge is there about where are you going to get that movement and the growth in the economy. Yeah, so, I mean, before we because there's a strong... Uh, Islamic concept that we can talk about around this uh, but before we go into that as a company what would be the need to hold the wealth I mean who is that money serving if it's not being pumped back into the economy then what are they what are they holding on to it for you know there's just there seems no moral justification for making that level of profit without passing it down through the economy or passing it down to the consumer in, in you know through economic terms and like I said we'll, we'll you know look at the Islamic uh, concept around that in, in a yeah. second, yeah, and you've already kind of touched on uh, one on, on an example um, of how it can be of how tax can be used. Um, but um, um, in, in that sense, you know, what what's the point in, in a company making that level of profit and hoarding it and not uh, passing it down? I mean, are we just satisfying shareholders? Quite possibly, that might be the case. The alternative is how they utilize that cash alternative as well. So you could argue the case is that. If it could be used for investment, it probably would do. But the question yeah. may be that the investment opportunities that they see fit at that time are not viable for them. So it could be an issue of they may be utilizing it for later investment or the investments they have on their table are not suitable for them to, to utilize. Or they may feel that there's a risk further down the line that they want to, to let's say, alleviate themselves or, or mitigate that risk by having a surplus of cash to avoid those kind of issues as well. Okay, so moving on to, you know, how that would be dealt with Islamically. 
um, the, um, His Holiness, uh, the head of uh, the Ahmadiyya community, Mr. Masoor Ahmed, uh, gave gave a, a talk at the Seventh Annual Peace Symposium. This was back in two thousand and ten. And this and and this is one of the one of the things he spoke about was the the lack of fair economic conditions, and that uh, you know this there's a need it's it's a human rights issue he called it a human rights yeah. issue, and uh, you know and he and he and he gave some examples and one was in Medina he said at the time when the Holy Prophet was there there was a, a creation of a taxation system uh, to help the poor and avoid uh, hoarding of health. Wealth and uh, wealth. Sorry, <laughs> did I say hell? Yeah, you did say hell. Health, that was I'm a good sorry. one. <laughs> <laughs> Holding a wealth, as was the code of business and the financial ethics to ensure fair and honest trade. So it was a part of the, you know, business setup yeah. to ensure that you don't hoard wealth. And you know that 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 that's, that's how you know it was. It was to ensure that businesses can't hold on to the money and that whatever they do make gets passed down in, in, into the into the poorer in society. And uh, it was helpful. The things it was used for, just to give it some practical. Um, um, practicalities around it. Uh, it was public sanitation, uh, and this is we talk about Medina back then. Public sanitation, a city cleaning program was implemented. Uh, citizens taught the importance of hygiene and physical health. Roads were expanded and improved, so it benefited, you know, in a big way, you know, Medina at the time. And you know, how can it be used today? You know? well, I mean, we've got all of that, been, right? But it has been used yeah. today. I mean, that yeah. that, that concept essentially yeah. that would be defined in modern times as an infrastructure spend, really yeah. effectively, because yeah. you are building sanitary yeah. concept, you know, building sanitation into a society, and obviously that that impact has a health aspect to it. All right, so yeah. people, you know, effectively speaking, if you make the uh, society healthier. Uh, you avoid illness, you avoid illness, you increase levels of human yeah, productivity, yeah. right? Yeah. So in essence, it's a great scheme to actually improve your productivity in, in the society, right? Yeah. And in modern um, era, you know, in previous recessions that we've had, you would have known that a lot of economies, certainly Western economies, pick up on this idea of infrastructure spend. Yeah. So infrastructure spend would be like, you know, building railways or motorways or any kind of infrastructure spend would be a good way of ensuring that, you know, the economy, there's a big government spend on a program that has a knock-on benefit to society as well. I mean, you know, if you have a railway connection that's faster, that will boost the economy in, in those particular locations. So there are a number of things that would help a society by increasing those infrastructure spend. Um, that's essentially how you would mitigate some of the negative impact of mm-hmm. a recession by having those kind of infrastructure spend, spend and, and keep the economy growing and dynamic and, and moving, essentially. So um, one of the quotes um, in the Holy Quran is uh, chapter 16, verse 91, where it says, uh, Very Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others uh, and giving the like of uh, and and give like the giving of kin to kin. So it, it, it essentially um, enjoin enjoining justice. So you know when we make that kind of profit and giving like kin to kin, that you should be able to, you know, spend that money as if, you know, these people are your kin basically. Um, how how realistic is that today? I mean how. <laughs> practical is that to say in 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 the corporate world in which we live you know I, I look at these words and these words are so wise and you know they're so you know but is it me just seeing it as in through i some kind of idealistic lens no, I, 
or some businesses i mean typically have tried to have what they call social responsibility um you know social corporate responsibility kind of ser kind of what mm-hmm. they call aspects to what their business is about so they will actually within that use that as part of their giving approach towards and putting on that what they value as well so they use it part of building their brand their value and giving back to society so some of them do that the question will always be around whether that's enough compared to what what else they're creating from profits and so forth that will always be what people can judge them against so it, okay so is there a difference okay so between that you know, you got your regular companies making profits, your private companies. Yeah, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, and then those companies, those companies like energy companies, you know, we could talk about rails and stuff like that, yeah. being in government hands, i.e., nationalisation. You know, th- these these are private companies making profits for a shareholder. Is there a you know, is it better for them because you can't? Is it possible to make that kind of profit and pump it back to into the economy? You know, to serve the poor in society without it being without a government hand being involved. Uh, because if it's left in the hands of the private company, you're servicing the shareholder more than you are yeah, the, and the end the consumer. Big, the big challenge... And I'm not, I'm not very into kind of yeah. any kind of socialist argument here or anything like that. Uh, it's just, you know, generally what, you know, should those most important companies like the energy become, the ones that affect everyone, which it used to be, uh, water as well, uh, be, you know, nationalised. So that's a very good question. I mean, these were any companies that were previously nationalized. Yeah. And then the one of the reasons why they were privatized was the idea that in private hands, they can raise capital to, for investment within yeah. the operation. So, I mean, you would argue that a huge amount of investment has gone into the infrastructure and energy, billions and billions and billions that has gone into this that would otherwise have had to be footed the bill by the taxpayer. Yeah. And that would have been the argument for it. The diff- there, there are several ways that you can control those sort of organizations. One, obviously, is the idea of nationalization. Mm-hmm. Another approach is regulation. Okay. So you could use regulation to control the behavior if you feel the behavior of uh, um, of those organizations are maybe not strong enough. Another way is actually having um, what you might have as as reg- regulatory bodies, essentially, which yeah. in itself will allow... But they do lem- exist. Those regulatory bodies do exist, and there is heavy do. regulation around them. It may not necessarily account for their actual behavior towards how they deal with profit and and so forth and how they deal with what standards they have with um, the service to their consumer, right? So let's say an argument might well be that you would have water companies that are uh, being challenged at the moment in terms of how they behave. One of the arguments will be about how they pump amount of sewage into yeah. into the the rivers and streams and and uh, seas that are coastal areas and therefore sort of polluting them essentially. And the argument would be around that is that that's not acceptable. Yeah. Whereas the energy, those companies themselves will say that you know we are achieving this 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 and this this standards. The question will be around that is. Are those controls tight enough? Should they be made tighter? Mm-hmm. Should you put a penalty on, let's say, the um, salaries of the the directors and the owners of that business that says, you know, you can't take a bonus if you're not achieving these results yeah. or this benefit? And you're still, for example, losing loads of water through sort of broken pipes and yeah. and so forth. So the, those... Are, aspects of regulation is there that you could utilize. The question also then is that if you go down the nationalization route with such companies, and remember these companies are 
not just ordinary companies, they're actually critical to your society, yeah, that's right. to your nation, everything around that, so forth. I mean, the, one of the challenges we had at this moment in time is that from a country point of view, is that our dependency on gas, gas which has come from the cheapest source, which has been Russia, which is now uh, supposedly an adversary indirectly through, through Ukraine, is causing us a challenge in terms of how we have energy independence, essentially. And our energy independence is now being exposed at this moment mm-hmm. in time. And so these companies are now under the, the kind of spotlight of, of things. The, 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 the big challenge also has been is around how, you know, we use a concept of marginal pricing okay. for, for energy. So that, that's been another challenge. So, yeah. you know, the moti- what is the motivation? So the question will be is what is the motivation after this crisis to actually change, for example? Yeah. At the moment in time, when when we buy electricity, the, there's something called a grid, which will know how much demand we have for electricity. When we switch on our kettle during a commercial break or something, yeah. they know there's a surge. So they will have to buy that electricity in yeah. from the different producers or stock up on that electricity in some respects. So they will buy from the cheapest source, might be nuclear, for example. They might buy from they will buy from yeah. the renewables sector, which will be windmills, offshore tidal, whatever options we have along there, solar is of course as well and they'll also then have to top up with areas such as your um, fuels your fossil Fossil fuels, fuels, predominantly also gas as well, so there are turbines, uh, gas electric turbines which run on gas that's been our problem in, in the current situation so even if for example you know, what happens is that even if you 5% 5% or 1% or 2% of our of the energy mix needed at that moment in time is made up of gas, 1% or 2%. Their prices will be the highest prices. But every other producer who's producing electricity at that moment in time will get the high price, the price that the gas supplier is charging to do the electricity, which essentially means that every organization is producing electricity is benefiting the renewables company the nuclear company is all benefiting from this idea that the high price for gas is their profit so yeah. where they may otherwise be charging let's say 100 pounds for a mega or whatever let's say mm-hmm. or i don't know the the, the 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 denominations but if that went up to 200 pounds because of the gas company who's charged that much then they will be profiting that from that amount. So the question will be, is the abnormal profits that are being made now by energy companies, all of them, be it fossil fuel, gas, whatever, when that does get addressed in the system, let's say next year or this year, whatever, then what will, the stakeholders will then be questioning, well, I'm not getting the same level of profits I was from this uh, energy company what are you doing to address that? So it would not be, if I was a managing director of any of these kind of energy companies, it would not be in my benefit to mitigate or remove the gas suppliers from that mix because why would I do that yeah. when I, I'm making those level of profits? And I don't necessarily have to reinvest that. I can be motivated to invest it, but then I don't want to get rid of them because I'm making huge profits because of their scarcity. I need that scarcity in the system, or that why should why should we have our electric grid system that is purely renewable, purely or nuclear, or whatever, or the cheapest, whatever the cheapest might be? It wouldn't make benefit for all the other energy companies because the profits would drop. In theory, 
And that's kind of the concern because those people have to be accountable to their shareholders. And those shareholders are looking at dividends and so so forth. So the question will be is how that how they will behave on that regards afterwards. And that's also what I think will be a, a, an area where what the, their motivation won't be there to necessarily bring down the prices. Okay, Asif, we'll take a short break and uh, then we'll get back and we'll try and look at some of the Islamic uh, you know, solutions to perhaps uh, some of these questions we've been asking. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Al-Quddus is the Holy One, one who is free from all flaws, a blessed being in whom all blessings are amassed. Sanctification of such a being is to declare him pure and flawless. Al-Quddus is the composite of all purity, not merely free from flaws, but also comprising of all excellences which are known and unknown to human perception. Allah is Quddus and His nearness cannot be availed unless one is pure. There are pure people who extol Allah's holiness much more than the angels do and they also spread it in the world. Among them, of course, the most excellent is the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The human adaptation and indeed beneficence of Quddus was at its most and best in the being of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He admonished his followers to also seek this beneficence and through its blessings, remove any bias they may harbor. It is said that when the divine commandment for the forbiddance of alcohol was made public, pots full of alcohol were immediately broken and liquor flowed through the streets of Medina. This revolutionary change was brought about through the Prophet's power of holiness. Famished, stricken with hunger and poverty. It was indeed the Prophet's power of holiness that brought about the blessings in the lives of the companions. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, depicts the transformation that the quality of the Prophet's holiness brought about in Arabia. This Prophet was created from the light of Allah who spread his fragrance to take Allah's beneficence to others. 
who removed what was false and manifested most luminously in his truth. He guided people who were but dead of soul, made them civilized and took them to the lofty stages of spiritual discernment. Their drunken nights were transformed into nights of worship of God and their drunken mornings were transformed into the morning prayer, tasbih and istighfar, seeking forgiveness of Allah. In the current age, we have witnessed the manifestation of the holiness of the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Today, we stand witness to the true reflection of the Qudus God on earth in the divine system of Khilafat-e-Ahmadiyya. Fortunate are those who recognize it and benefit from its spiritual power. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Uh, a quote that um, Liz Trust, the Prime Minister, uh, said was talking about where profits are evil. And we've looked at profits, we've looked at energy companies and the profits they make. Some of the reasoning behind that, the actual quote itself, and you know, what the implications around it. One thing I'd like to look at now, Asif, is taxation itself. It's one of those things that's a political battleground. Uh, it's one of those things that people look at with disdain. You know, it's always a big concern, you know, how much tax I'm paying on my salary and and so forth. Um, but then also, you know, it's something that's, that's needed if we're going to have a, you know, a, a society in which we can have some of the benefits that we have. Um you know, what's your opinion on, on that in terms of, you know, taxes, you know, we spoke about the high, the high earners being taxed less now uh, and some, some um, and the taxation on the lower and they're not feeling the benefits of this. Yeah. We spoke about trickle down economics. But, you know, essentially the tax there is to, you know, run, run the economy, is to run the, the country. You know, it gives us the infrastructure that we have. It gives us, you know, the health service that we have. And so that kind of thing is important. Yet there is, there seems to be this kind of ongoing problem. You know, the health service, national health service, we're always t we're told is, you know, on its knees basically and in need of uh, like huge investment. Yeah. Um, so you know, the taxation itself is is seems to be a yeah. problem around that. The interesting thing is that I don't know. We've lived a fair number of years in this country, Nasser, um, and I think mm. one of the things that I've kind of noticed that. At certain election times, you will get um, the certain parties that are pushing the slightly higher taxation approach. Taxation always comes up as uh, an election times, and, and there's always this idea that um, you know political parties are having to make a promise that they won't raise taxes, and, and so many have made that commitment, but then gone back on them by saying, "Well, circumstances have changed, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So this idea of taxation and what happens at election times, interesting enough, there's always a story. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's always a story about 
some sort of businessman, successful businessman, claiming I'm going to leave the country if so and so party gets in and raises taxes. Yeah. And it's 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 such a common repeated um, uh, which trope you might say just comes out time and time again that I've I've kind of see you can see start to see through that approach. You know, none of these business people actually end up leaving when such and such party comes in and, and, and has a let's say a higher taxation approach towards it and the the argument is essentially and always has been regarding taxation is that it actually is a disincentive to successful entrepreneurs or business people that it will actually put them off and, and or they'll take their business elsewhere or they'll look at tax havens etc whatever so this is the, the the reason is that their motivation for working then becomes less and less because if you are argue the cases that you know if they're paying 50% taxation or 45% taxation that means effectively half the working week they're working is going to the tax man the rest yeah. of the half they're, they're, they're making money on what ultimately though is is our attitude towards taxation because we'll see the negative we won't necessarily be the positive of what taxation brings and one of the in- interesting analogies is that if you take for example um this idea that, for example, there's an analogy that comes, or the statement that comes out that you may have heard of is that, you know, um, money doesn't buy you happiness, right? Yeah. So money doesn't buy you happiness. Uh, the argument sometimes on top of that is that, well, you know, but it does help kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. But the reason why that happens or that statement, there is truth to that statement. And the truth to that statement is that people who have money are probably a little bit more happier to some extent or or have some certain level of peace because if they feel comfortable that they can pay their bills and they can cover the costs or the concerns or those, they can mitigate risk with the money and whatever they're concerned about. They can pay for private health if they're not happy with their, the NHS or system or the, the current system that they have. They can mitigate all of those things. They can have insurance policies. They can afford all of those sort of things. So what they alleviate is they obtain a, a certain level of peace of mind that comes with all of that um, money, extra money that has. It doesn't buy complete happiness in that regards. And one of the scenarios is that taxation, to some extent, does achieve that approach. And the, the argument that I would make on that is that there is a statistic uh, or a, a campaign or a survey that goes out to, to measure the level of happiness in different countries around the world. And often, and very, very often, the, the countries that come top in that are Nordic countries. Finland is at the moment apparently top followed by Denmark and I think Sweden is also in the top within the top five so of the uh, top five countries you've got three Nordic countries in there Nor- and Norway's not far down on that list to number eight or something why is those countries in there but those countries in itself have a 50% tax rate above 50% tax rate system you would not want to move there if you don't like taxation yeah. right but why would those people in that country feel supposedly happy uh, and I've been to some of those countries they don't necessarily look happier. There's no ha ha he he kind of happiness, yeah. right? Everyone's walking around with a smile on their face. That happiness as such comes from a level of peace. Contentment. Contentment to some extent that, you know, things will be okay because two things are factor there. One is that, that they will from that taxation they can trust their government to put it into infrastructure or areas that they are concerned about i.e. their health. They're concerned about getting to work and that there's a safe way to do it. It's not polluted, etc. There's all of those kind of factors that might be kind of the education for their children, etc., etc. All of those factors make them feel that 
they've got the protection, the social safeguards that they need to get on with life, to be productive, to give back to society and to feel that the needy in their life will be taken care of. There are obviously some negatives that come around with that approach. But nevertheless, surely you can establish that there is a correlation between high taxation Mm -hmm. and social happiness or contentment that you might say because of two surveys that come out on that side one is that happiness one and knowing that these countries are in, the, in themselves one of the t- you know they're in the top 10 countries for taxation themselves so there's a correlation there the uk for example would be about midway on, on both those two areas it is neither the most happiest nor is it the highest level of taxation it has had a highest rate of taxation but the general rate of taxation or personal taxation isn't as high as it is on other countries. So that aspect of things means that, you know, we're not using, we're not seeing this taxation as having a benefit to society in, in general. And if it's used correctly for with a good government that sort of allocates those resources effectively, you know, a lot of good can be done from that. And and that's the important thing, isn't it? Uh, doing good with that, with that, with the, with the profits that we're talking about, uh, which is, you know, how we started the show. So yeah. in terms of, having that level of taxation but it should affect the business as well so i want to talk about zakat a little bit uh in, in that respect in terms of um you know it's an islamic pillar one of the islamic yeah. one of the five pillars of uh, some something we spoke about a few weeks back and it's about purifying one's wealth uh by utilizing it for the betterment of society so in a sense as a zakat as a concept you know uh wealth tax i guess uh, is is the closest thing we can uh, put it put it you know it's kind of the closest thing we can um, relate it to when it comes to tax. You know, would that help uh, alleviate that? Of course. First of all, if you look at wealth as a tax, wealth taxation, wealth actually is something that's um, stagnant. It doesn't move. It doesn't generate anything. It's not working for you, right? Yeah. So the idea of taking a, a tax on that wealth it forces um, people to make that wealth work for them, right? To ensure that it gets circulated in the economy. So there is one of the important aspects of things. Circulating money and wealth in the economy does generate kind of this idea of growth and, you know, it does generate this whole idea that it will be sort of actively used. And if it's used in a more charitable kind of way, which is, i.e., looking at welfare as as an example, then it the rate at which that income is moved is a lot more quicker. So, you know, the economics of it all work out perfectly well. Firstly, you're taking wealth which is stagnant, which is not doing anything, and you're pumping it into an area which will move it in the economy more effectively and quicker. And so really, that's one of the the most effective ways of improving your economy as well. So, yeah, and I think this is one of the things that His Holiness, the head of the uh, Amadeh community, Hazrat Mr. Mursur Ahmed, his Holiness has said, it said that the world hasn't given the importance. And, and, and there was a particular address he gave uh, in Singapore uh, in 2013, uh, where he said that uh, when it comes to religion today, uh, it does not give it anywhere near as much importance and interest in religious matters. And, you know, so maybe if we gave some more interest into religious matters and use those examples, it would be better because we seem to be moving away far away from the concept of religion and faith. And, you know, what drives us in, you know, things like zakat and making sure wealth is distributed fairly um, is our belief in God. I mean, you know, this, this is essential in in today's society. It's something we've moved away from. 
and you know, kind of in these last few minutes of the show, I'd, I'd like to like, kind of focus on that. Is how much of an effect has that had on on society? Because it seems the further we move away from a creator, and you know, we're living in you know wealthy times. We're living in uh, you know, we're not, we're not in the past where you know children were having to work and you know cleaning the chimneys or whatever. You know, you know, we're, we're living in wealthy times. We're living in a, in a civilized society, yet people are suffering. And, you know, it seems that, you know, His Holiness has mentioned time and time again that there is a need for people to recognize their creator. And, you know, you know, we're talking from the Islamic concept, you know, being Muslims. You know, zakat seems the only plausible way to ensure that this kind of money is then fed down into the economy in a, in a legitimate and proper way. Two things to add to that as well is that it's one of the arguments will always be that why should the state have in, intervene in terms of how you distribute wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And that you know you can leave it to philanthropy and charity donations to drive it. The argument there is is that both those two things work in Islam. Like, firstly, you you are still able to give donations to people in the way you feel fit and and benefit. At the same time, you still benefit from a collective approach yeah. where a government can use that wealth use the efficiencies of having a single program that can deliver uniform benefit to to its masses. And that idea of zakat is really one of the more effective approaches to it. So it's a it's the best of both worlds. And the argument here is is that, you know, we've talked about this probably before, is is that there is this idea that um, there is social responsibility. Your leadership mm-hmm. in a country, and we talk about Hazrat Umar as well as, as an example of how he understood his responsibility to his citizens. And that example of leadership is something has to come, you know, we, we can see issues there in the current scenario areas that if the strategy is, is the trickle-down approach, then if it doesn't work, you've, you've actually... Um, to some extent, um, not actually benefited your actual citizens because if yeah. it doesn't work, it's a high risk strategy. Yeah. So, um, in terms of uh, high risk strategy, um, what, um, in which way would we be able to introduce that concept into the world today? How would we be able to introduce the kind of the idea of a wealth tax? Because I, I don't know if people would accept it. I mean, first, it has to be a belief. In God, right? First, there has to be a kind of that movement back towards that belief in God. People have to have a, that kind of social responsibility. Maybe even the idea that the people that are responsible for that particular wealth, you have to have integrity and trust within those people and that they are yeah. serving their society. So, in essence, you know, you may not change people's view and ideas towards God. We hope they can. Mm-hmm. And, and, there is has to be a level of trust that you think that the people that you're giving your money to will use it more effectively. That comes from faith, right? Yeah. It may not happen from most people, but at least what you should be able to do is ensure that the people that you've elected and that you're putting in charge of all of this are responsible and will are responsible to you and to, to the citizens that they serve. And that's a huge part of it, isn't it? To actually have a responsibility towards those people. So, well, I'm afraid that's it for this week and uh, or this week's edition to Pathway to Peace. And um, we'll be back, obviously, at the same time next week. A uh, big thank you to Asif for your opinions and for the information you've today. It's been really helpful and your analysis. Uh, but before we uh, end, is a quote that I want to uh, say uh, by the head of the Amnia community, Hazrat uh, Mizam Ahmed, uh, who's been championing the cause for economic justice, you know, for such a long time now, uh, for the past 20 years. And uh, he said this nine years ago. His following his words were, indeed, even the develop, 
Even in the developed countries, there are hundreds and thousands of people who are suffering from hunger and poverty. In conclusion, I should say that this is an extremely vast topic and I've only covered a very small aspect of one part of this huge subject at that time when he was talking. He said, certainly there is an essential need for the world to pay heed towards fulfilling the rights of one another. The world has come to resemble a global village. And if so, we fail to discharge each other's rights, then the unrest that has already taken root could ultimately lead to extremely dangerous and devastating consequences. If we look back at history, we realize that a major factor that led to the first two world wars was that the prevailing economic situation and this part of the world where you reside was also caught in its effect. If such circumstances were to prevail again, it would be extremely difficult to predict who would be safe and who would be in danger. We can only pray and present the facts and realities in front of everyone in an effort to hope, effort and hope that the world can be saved from all forms of destruction and danger. This is essential so that we are not, not we are we are not looked upon with anger and as transgression and as transgressors uh, by our future generations. You have been listening to Nasir Sajjad on the Pathway to Peace and Asif Wasif. Feel free to carry on the discussion via Twitter on at Voice of Islam UK using the voice VOI Peace. And may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day, 